Hello and welcome to another episode of the Politics Theory of the Podcast. My name is Alex Doherty. Two guests today. In the first half hour, I'll be speaking with Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, about the dire situation in Gaza and also the West Bank, and about the dramatic escalation of Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism in the United States. In the second half of the episode, international security expert Paul Rogers joins the show again to talk about how Israel is likely to approach its attempt to destroy Hamas and the risks of regional escalation. If you've been finding PTO useful, please do consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 supporters get access to episodes of PTO Extra, including the upcoming episode in which Richard Seymour will be responding to listeners' questions regarding the interview on Gaza that we recorded last week. And now to our first interview. Lara Friedman is the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. She's a leading authority on the Middle East, with particular expertise on US foreign policy in the region, on Israel-Palestine, and on the way related issues play out in Congress and in US domestic politics. So Lara, in recent days, the Foundation for Middle East Peace of which you are the president, uh, and you yourself, have made use of the term genocide or incipient genocide to describe what is occurring in Gaza. Many supporters of the Palestinians in their struggle for statehood have in the past previously shied away from the term when describing Israel's project in the West Bank and Gaza, in part no doubt out of understandable reticence that doing so might suggest direct equivalents being drawn with the Nazi Holocaust. Now, I I know from your work that you're not someone who is given to exaggeration or hyperbole. So I wonder if you could explain why, in your view, it is, in fact, correct and appropriate to use the term to describe what Israel is doing in Gaza right now. So thank you. And I I think that's a fair question. I would say that I have referred to mainly incipient genocide or policies that look like they may lead to genocide. Um, I, I think part of the distinction is between people who are using it Um, in a sort of non-legal sense of it sure looks like this is an effort to kill and destroy a people and people are using it in a legal sense and and in the legal sense under I believe it's article 6 of the Rome statute genocide is is a term that is used when you're talking about actions that are bringing about the physical destruction of a people the term genocide or warnings of genocide have now come from UN officials, ICC officials, Israeli international law and genocide experts. I think, you know, it's fair to say, is it a genocide now? Or are you worried that a genocide might happen? But, you know, to have a debate over whether or not what we are seeing genuinely threatens the the people, the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, the physical destruction of those people, Um, at some point becomes sort of fatuous. I mean, the reality on the ground is is clear what's happening. And the the effort to make this into a semantic debate of has it crossed the line or does it threaten to cross the line or are you worried based on when you're seeing it's going to cross the line? Um, In all of those cases, the word genocide is appropriate um, in in a discussion of what's happening right now. And can I just ask, are, are you yourself in direct contact with people on the ground in Gaza about the situation? And if so, what are you hearing? So I'm going to be honest, the last couple of days, I mean, for the first few days, my colleagues and I were getting text messages and WhatsApp messages, either reporting on what's happening or reporting on fears and toward the end, more reporting, I'm still alive. 
Um, I haven't personally received anything from anyone on the ground in Gaza since late last week. Um, I know other people, I mean, there, there are certain people who I know are, are texting messages out. The internet is, is not accessible. My understanding is you can't reach people via WhatsApp and they don't have internet access, but some of them still are able to get through via um, SMS, via chat, and are, are actually sending messages out via SMS. And those are being shared um, either on social media or within groups of people. But the ability to get um, information out has, has been greatly degraded. Regarding the evacuation order that Israel gave to the population of northern Gaza, which has rightly been condemned by pretty much every human rights organization going, what do you make of that order? Do you think it's been done solely to facilitate Israel's war on Hamas and that at some point Israel will withdraw? Or do you think the intention is to permanently depopulate and perhaps garrison the north of Gaza? I mean, I, I, I hesitate to, to, to suggest I mean, I, I'm not inside the minds of Israeli planners. Based yeah. on the Israeli military doctrine, which we've seen for years, most notably in South Lebanon, which is you prefer to fight people on their land than on yours, right? You move the battlefield onto the other party's um, land. I think there is very good reason to suspect from the military military doctrine position alone that Israel is seeking to turn the northern part of Gaza into a, a no-go zone for Palestinians and to, to fight Hamas or anybody else within and from that zone. But on top of that, we have the clearly expressed view going back many, many years of many politicians, not just on the far right, which is, you know, the way we went on Gaza is by getting rid of Palestinians. <laughs> I mean, that's not, it, yeah. Yeah, the, the idea that the solution um, to Gaza is moving them to Egypt, or as we had in a report from the Foundation for Defense of Democracy today, that, that they should be taken in by all of the countries that have supported Hamas, which is, is a kind of odd statement given that countries like Qatar and Egypt, their engagement with Hamas, you know, over the past 16 years of the blockade has been with the cooperation and permission, in effect, of the Israeli government, which is, has actively, you know, sought them as intermediaries. But the idea that there is, you know, simply you know, when, when Israel has framed the, the evacuation order from northern Gaza as simply a tactic in order to protect civilian lives as they go after Hamas, while they effectively create all by itself, if nothing else was happening, requiring a million people to pick up and move in a war zone um, would be a humanitarian catastrophe. In the context of a war zone where Israel has now for days cut off fuel, food and water, bombed the infrastructure, bombed the medical facilities, it is a catastrophe of, of really um, epic proportions. Um, and to suggest that that's merely for a humanitarian purpose of avoiding killing Palestinians, given the huge numbers of Palestinians that are already being killed, civilians, and given the clear political agenda of trying to move Palestinians out of that part of Gaza and, and moving the military in, I mean, it, it just, it, it doesn't hold water. The situation in Gaza has meant a relative lack of attention regarding what's also occurring in the occupied West Bank. But dozens of Palestinians have been killed, and it seems reasonable to suppose that both soldiers and the fanatical religious settlers will feel further emboldened to attack Palestinians. What's your sense of the situation in the West Bank at the moment? And could you say something on the deterioration of the security of Palestinians there in recent months? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I, I just got off a briefing call with people working in, in parts of the West Bank. Look, the, the situation in the West Bank 
I mean, deteriorating is it's a problematic word to use in many ways because it was already terrible. Certainly since the current Israeli government came into power, it's a government that includes in its ranks and very senior roles, including roles that have power over the security apparatus in the West Bank. You have people who are deeply connected to the Israeli expansionist far right. We call them the greater Israel folks, right? The people who believe that the, the state of Israel um, should extend from the river to the sea and view the, the presence of Palestinians there um, as an obstacle and as illegitimate. So for months now, we've seen an uptick, a massive uptick in violence from settlers with the tacit and sometimes active, um, well, tacit in terms of allowing it, sometimes active support in terms of actually supporting it of the IDF, the Israeli army, and with the support politically from elements within this Israeli government. You know, it seems like a hundred years ago, but it was like less than two weeks ago that Israeli settlers had the IDF basically shut down the town of Hawara, where they had previously committed a pogrom not long ago. But it was just over a week ago they shut down Hawara and held a Sukkot celebration in downtown Hawara and then marauded through the town, destroying things. And a young Palestinian man who was on the roof of his home, um, which was being, I believe, stoned by settlers at the time, was shot and killed. So things were escalating. We had, I think there have been more Palestinians killed in the West Bank by settlers and soldiers even before this war on an annual basis uh, this year than, than in many, many, many years. What we've seen, and if you talk to Palestinians on the ground, and those are people I actually I'm, I'm able to talk to, including today, um, it's it is nearly open season. I think that's what I would say. Um, folks can watch the video from I believe late last week of a settler, I believe it was in the South Hebron Hills, walking into an area where there are Palestinians, um, walking up to a Palestinian and shooting him in the stomach. That settler is not under arrest. That Palestinian is still in the hospital. And that took place in an area called Masafrayata, where settlers have been attacking Palestinians for a very long time. If you talk to people who are in Masafrayata now, they will talk to you about daily attacks. There is no one to protect. And effectively, a sense that there is a shoot on site and, and, and no, no possible um, accountability rule in place across the West Bank. And it's worth noting that the West Bank is under lockdown by Israeli order. So for Palestinians who are out and about, there is an immediate fear that if you are caught out of your house or out of your village and you come face to face with someone, you will die. And that there is truly no bandwidth in the international community, in the human rights sector, in the media to do really anything other than maybe have you be a footnote on the bigger story. It's been argued by a number of analysts that although it may well be that Israel can defeat Hamas militarily, and perhaps even a combination of Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran, although that's clearly much less certain, that Israel can never achieve security because of the persistent refusal to address the underlying causes of the conflict. But do you think Netanyahu and other senior Israeli politicians and security officials really seek lasting security in the short to medium term? Is it not plausible that at least some of those figures and, and perhaps the people you mentioned, the more fanatical and religiously motivated ministers like Smotrich and Ben Gavir, that they hope to simply outlast the Palestinians, so to speak, that they believe they can execute a gradual dispossession and demoralization of the Palestinians in the occupied territories, and that they believe that they can eventually achieve a political victory just by grinding the Palestinians down for decades to come? 
After all, it's not the early 1970s. Israel may be opposed by Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran, but the IDF doesn't face the kind of conventional military threat it did from Egypt and Syria back then. And also the Israeli economy has not been hurt by the occupation and and perpetual conflict. Instead, it's the most advanced in the region. So is there any reason to think Israel can't just continue on the path it's going down indefinitely? I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways, and I'm sorry if I'm sort of going off on, on some tangents here. I think the first part is to recognize for, for people who long argued that Israel has to make peace, otherwise all of these terrible things will happen to it economically, it won't get normalization, it'll become a pariah. Um, I, I think for the peace camp, the arguments that were made around Oslo were always, if you make peace, all of these great things will come to you. And if you don't make peace, all these terrible things will happen to you. And the opponents of Oslo, even then, and this goes back to Bibi, the answer was, no, you're wrong. All of those great things that you say we'll get with peace, we can get them anyway. And not making peace, none of those things are going to happen. We won't, it, the U.S. won't allow it. We are, whatever reason, we can prevent it. And arguably, what we've seen since 1993 is that's true. With nobody willing to hold Israel accountable to international law, to its obligations under under the Oslo Agreement, to its obligations to you know various U.S. administrations on settlements or anything else, the fact is that that there's been you know not just no progress, there's been backsliding on on things that I think people thought were pretty much settled, like you know Palestinians should get a state. And in the meantime, the things that Israel has wanted in terms of, you know, stronger relations and economic relations with the world have not only not been hurt, I mean, they've gotten, you know, it's been a constant win, win after win, um, including with the U.S. up to and including the visa waiver, which they were granted just before this war broke out. So the logic for Israel of you have to make peace, otherwise bad things will happen and you won't get good things. I, I don't think that is um, I don't think it's one. I mean, and, and frankly, the folks who made those arguments, by the way, including myself for many years, I think really missed the point, which is it's not about you do these things because you're incentivized by either good things or you're disincentivized by potential bad things. Israel should have done things because it's right. You don't you don't stop abusing the rights of Palestinians because you're getting, you know, a benefit. You stop abusing it because it's wrong to have your your foot on the neck of another people in perpetuity. Um, and I think by not making this about rights and international law and justice, those concepts, that's one of the reasons why they've become so weakened. In terms of looking ahead, look, the Israeli tactic now for 16 years with Gaza has been what they call mowing the lawn. And that has worked, I think, from their perspective, quite well. Um, you know, Hamas periodically or, or Islamic Jihad shoot some rockets. They get, you know, it's just Israel has to make a point. They go in, they bomb Gaza horrifically, they kill a lot of people. And then the next few years are spent on a rebuilding process. And that occupies the international community. It occupies all of the political will and energy and money there is. Um, if you remember, the, I think it was the last major Gaza war where we we had then years of negotiations over a reconstruction mechanism over which Israel maintained veto power, which basically, you know, made reconstruction. If normally in a reconstruction catastrophe situation, the effort is to reconstruct as quickly as possible, you ended up with a, an internationally sanctioned approach that made reconstruction deliberately as slow as, and ineffective as possible. So that that's worked quite well. 
from an Israeli perspective, I suspect at the moment, looking at Gaza, there is a, from the Israeli right-wing military perspective, which is Bibi, I don't know if that's where the actual military is, the current crisis and the, the horrific, heinous, and let's be clear, illegal war crime attack that Hamas carried out on October 7th offered an opportunity to go further than Israel has ever dared before in seeking to not just mow the lawn, but to plow the turf and sow it with salt. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. How far this goes, will Israel succeed in pushing an enormous amount or a huge number of these refugees, who are, by the way, already refugees from what was Israel, what was Palestine, pre-48, now they're refugees in Gaza. Will these displaced persons inside Gaza now be pushed outside of Gaza? And then that maybe solves things in for the next 25 years until the next round of something. Um, will they be pushed into a narrower area and the world will agree that Israel has greater operational freedom to fight terrorism? I mean, we just don't know. Looking at looking at the regional context with Hezbollah and Iran and I mean, the, the, the U.S. having military forces now in, in the Mediterranean Sea poised there. I mean, there are obviously bigger dynamics in play. I was talking to a, a colleague um, just the other day, and I, I reminded them of an article that I wrote some years back around the Iraq War. Um, it was a conversation that I'd had with a senior, um, senior House Democrat, a leader in the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, and I'd met with him with an Israeli official just before the Iraq war started. And he was making making the case for an Iraq war. And we were challenging him, saying, aren't you worried at all what that will unleash? You know, deaths for Israelis, deaths of others, insecurity, instability. And he, and this is almost a word for word, um, I mean, as I remember what he said, because it was so shocking. And he said, you have to imagine the Middle East is like a kaleidoscope. If you pick up the kaleidoscope and look through it, you don't see much, much that's pretty. But if you shake it, whatever you see is more beautiful than what you had before. And, and his point was that, yeah, right now things are bad and you're worried things are going to get worse. But if we just shake this kaleidoscope a few times, then maybe whatever comes out will have more opportunities that will be good for us. I heard that and I thought that is a, an image of broken glass and blood. But... Anyway, I, I call that the shaking the kaleidoscope theory of, of military uh, victory. I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing here from the Israeli side. If this implicates Hezbollah, then fine, the war gets bigger, and maybe that'll work out well for Israel. If it implicates Iran, as I think many members of Congress hope it will, then fantastic. We can finally have regime change. And if it destabilizes the entire region, then you know Israel can move forward during the fog of war and annex the West Bank and throw out Gaza and do whatever it wants. I, I think all of those things are on the table right now in, in a military action on the ground, which appears to be extremely retributive and reactive and, and not really about any specific long-term agenda. And on that pretty terrifying prospect of the war regionalizing further, as you say, it may be possible that Israeli officials want this, ex expect this. But when it comes to regime change in Iran, say, presumably that would require direct U.S. intervention. Do you think the Israelis may want to draw the U.S. into such a wider war? I, I think that it, it would be surprising to me if, you know, particularly with the Biden administration moving significant military assets into the into the Mediterranean, 
for those in Israel who have long seen Iranian regime change as the be-all and end-all of Israeli security um, logic, um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying anybody is is hoping that 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 happens, but I think that's something that that they're certainly thinking about and planning for. And again, if you listen to members of Congress, I'll, I'll again point to FDD, which had an op-ed on I believe Friday entitled something like. Was Biden's speech as pro-Israel as you think? And the answer was no, because it didn't include the one most important word, Iran. Just turning to the United States for a moment. So there's clearly been a concerted effort on behalf of some of Israel's backers to suggest that supporters of the Palestinians are anti-Semitic, a line that was used in Britain to attack Jeremy Corbyn and the left of the Labour Party with a great deal of success. Although obviously one shouldn't pretend that anti-Semitism doesn't exist on the left, even if it's a very small minority of people. Do you think those kinds of attacks are proving effective in the United States in disciplining the few socialist members of Congress or the, or the Palestinian solidarity movement more broadly? And could you say something on what the movement is being subjected to at the moment? Yeah, so those attacks have been going on for a very long time here. They've been ramping up with the campaign around the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, that's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which is the definition that explicitly conflates criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. There's been efforts to put this into law for a few years, um, both at states and at the federal level. Some of, most of those have been less successful at the state level. It's been largely adopted um, symbolically, but not as a matter of law. But look, I mean, on the one hand, I think it is clear that there is deep sentiment in support of Palestinians and growing sentiment in support of Palestinians. That has been shown in, in polls before this war, um, things, polls that I think are, are deeply concerning to those in the United States who don't want to see legitimization of Palestinian identity and claims and narratives and free speech. I think that's deeply disturbing, which is one of the reasons you see such a, a strong pushback. Um, at the same time, look, the, the, the movement is under just constant attack. I mean, if you look at just a few weeks ago, the, the Palestine Rights Festival in, in, in Philadelphia, this is a Palestinian literature festival, which, yes, does have political, political angles to it, just like any Jewish literature festival is going to have a whole lot about Zionism in Israel. Absolutely. This is a literature festival, and it was, it was, it was, it was treated in the mainstream media and by, by leading um, legacy Jewish communal leaders, like at the ADL, as some sort of anti-Semitic hate fest, and, and the amount of efforts that were put to try to shut it down, and those efforts failed, um, which is good that they failed, and that it went through and there was, there was, it was, there was no violence, it was a literature fest. But now we see this week, or this week, end of last week, with this war, an effort to sort of reignite this controversy between, I mean, I'm seeing this focus on University of Pennsylvania and Harvard, where Harvard students um, issued a statement in support of Palestinians. Um, this was immediately after the Hamas attack. I understand why people were dismayed at the lack of empathy the statement showed. I also understand that people probably writing that statement were already looking ahead and, and anticipating just how horrific the Israeli uh, retribution was going to be. 
But regardless, in both of those cases, with Pennsylvania and with Harvard, the effort now is, you know, we're going to get these universities defunded. We're going to get all the major funders to cut off their funds. We're going to demand that leadership be, be, be fired. We have an effort to dox basically every Palestinian, every student who is associated with the statements at Harvard and make sure they never get jobs. It, it, it's quite extraordinary. And these sort of attacks are grounded in a, a deep racism and dehumanization of Arabs and Palestinians, which has, has long been the rule. And it really previously, this, this dehumanization racism crested um, with the Iraq war. But this time around, the speed of hate has accelerated much, much more quickly this time around. And I, I don't know if that's because of muscle memory. It's very easy for people to go back to feeling that hate that was so familiar during the Iraq war or because of social media or, or, or what. But for those of us who, you know, at the, you know, a week ago were warning that the level of dehumanization and hate towards Palestinians and Arabs should be worrying people. And by the way, they should also be worried about rising anti-Semitism, the surging anti-Semitism. Yes, absolutely. But you have to be able to think about both. And the fact that I believe it's yesterday, a six-year-old child was, was stabbed to death in his own home with his mother stabbed as well because they're Palestinian-American and the landlord broke in. And it was, it was an open hate crime. And this was in Chicago. In Chicago. The fact that we're finding out that over the weekend, I think, somebody in was it Michigan was arrested after advertising who wants to come with me to Dearborn and hunt Muslims or hunt Palestinians or something. I mean, this is just the beginning. It's deeply troubling to see the, the, the dehumanization around Palestinians. It, it almost feels as if um, there are those in this country who feel that any expression of criticism of Israel or concern for Palestinians, even as they are literally being massacred, as these are civilians, right? No one's arguing that the family of whatever, it, it's, it's any expression of concern for them is anti-Semitic, and that if you want to support, if you want to, if you are critical of Hamas's actions against Israel, it means you cannot be critical of Israel's actions against civilians. And also, I have to say, I mean, it it's grounded in some some just extraordinary logical feats. I mean, for Americans, and you know, I am old enough to remember the Bin Laden logic which said, your government is evil, therefore all Americans are combatants. They're your government, you voted for them. And I see this on social media and I hear this from people who, who are challenging me in interviews like this and their argument is, well, you know, Palestinians voted for Hamas, so they're all combatants. Well, you know, okay, Palestinians voted for Hamas in 2006. That means that the majority of people in Gaza weren't born yet or were small children. So that doesn't work. Someone with a huge following, who I will not name here, tweeted out that they voted for Hamas because they promised to kill Jews or something like that. Okay, well, I, I was an election monitor in 2006. I'm, I'm that old, and I, I was there. And and it, Hamas ran on a platform that wasn't about, quote-unquote, resistance or anything else. They ran on a platform of... The other guys are corrupt and have been in power for 15 years and have achieved nothing. Throw the bastards out. Give us a chance. That was their campaign, literally. But beyond that, I mean, the argument that even if the election had been yesterday and everyone had voted for Hamas and Hamas had a horrible agenda, 
the idea that every civilian, I mean, is every American responsible? Every single American, whether or not you voted for him, are they responsible for Donald Trump for those four years? Does that mean somebody can come and attack America? The, the logic is bizarre. Um, and it, and it's, it's, it's the logic of terrorism. And, and the other piece of it, which the other argument that we keep hearing, and, and again, it's utterly dehumanizing, which is the argument which says Hamas bears responsibility for every person who's killed in Gaza because they attacked Israel. Everything Israel is forced to do, they're forced to do by Hamas. I mean, that's it, which effectively erases Israeli responsibility and agency for anything it does. I mean, you, you sort of think about if the logic is that in a state of war, one side can say, I can do whatever I want to the other side and just blame their leaders for the people I kill. I mean, it, 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 it's a moral deflection that basically erases the basic precept of war, which is you don't target civilians, right? And that's, that, these are the arguments we're having. And, and, and these arguments, utter, they start with the utter dehumanization of Palestinians. They turn them into extras. They turn them into to non-player characters in, in some sort of military video game um, where, I, you know, I guess people imagine the Hamas guys are, you know, they're in a tunnel. So it's okay to bomb the building, which is full of multi-generational families that is above the tunnel that the Hamas guy might be hiding in. Um, it, it's, it's just surreal and, and it's just, it's, it's obscene. One thing we've seen on this side of the Atlantic is some media commentators not just conflating Hamas and ISIS, which, which is obviously not accurate at the ideological level or in terms of how the groups have governed or the history and, and so on, but also comparing Hamas to the Nazis, which is the sort of ideal comparison for Israel's supporters because of the obvious history that it evokes and because it can then be used as an argument to justify the mass killing of civilians because the Allies killed plenty of civilians during World War II. It's clearly a, a completely grotesque comparison, whatever one thinks of Hamas. Uh, Nazi Germany was not blockaded, bombed and semi-starved for 16 years and its enemies were not able to disconnect its energy and water systems at will. But have you seen those kind of comparisons in the United States as well? And, and do you think those comparisons, both with ISIS and Nazi Germany, uh, are gaining significant traction? Yeah, we absolutely have seen the comparison. I, I saw one, one of the sort of right-wing media figures that defends Israel today on social media basically comparing Hamas to, to the Nazis, basically saying they could understand why people sympathize with the Nazis because the Nazis were effective, but Hamas isn't even effective. It was, it was like, this is from a Jewish defender of Israel, like, wow, we're actually complimenting Nazis. They were effective. Um, yeah, look, we, we've seen it, and it's, it, this isn't, by the way, this is also not new. Um, you know, for years, the argument that, you know, this is a, there's a, a Netanyahu favorite argument that the Palestinians actually should bear responsibility for the entire Holocaust because he says that um, the Mufti of Jerusalem um, was a Nazi sympathizer who gave Adolf Hitler the idea of massacring Jews. So this explains, I guess, why Israel is comfortable making common cause with parties and governments in Europe that are, you know, openly um, have anti-Semitic Nazi roots, but, you know, can hate the Palestinians. Um, look, it, it, it is, I don't know if about taking root. This is all about dehumanization. I don't, how, how deep does it have to take root for people, you know, in their, you know, in their sort of psyche to, to take on board the idea that Palestinians are less human? Palestinians do not deserve the same rights the same dignity, the same life that we uh, we believe our tribe deserves, our people. 
um, the, the racism and dehumanization is a very, very easy place to go. Um, and I don't think the Nazi and ISIS comparison, these comparisons are being made by, by serious people. I don't think that this is a matter of someone, you know, that, that this becomes the, the basic framing, but it doesn't need mm. to. It doesn't need to. That's, that's again, the horror of, of social media. Again, the dehumanization, the, the level of, of hatred and racism here is just extraordinary. It really does feel a lot like the post 9-11 period, which, I mean, is amazing since the U.S. wasn't attacked this time. Um, and it really does feel in some ways worse. Um, and again, I don't know if that's because it's just so easy to slip back into being anti-Arab and racist and anti-Muslim, or if because it's because of social media, or if it's because of, you know, years and years and years of uh, a morality play that has really been um, taken on board as part of the identity of a lot of Americans. You know, Israel is our ally. We have shared values. They're like us. They're our, our ally in the desert, plus the, the evangelicals. Um, I, I don't I don't know what is the combination of factors, um, but, you know, calling Palestinians Nazis and comparing them to ISIS. And by the way, I say them deliberately. They're not that when people make these comparisons, they're they're not really distinguishing between Hamas and the Palestinian people. That's why it's important when a, a high profile defender of Israel says that all Palestinians in effect are guilty because they voted for Hamas. You know, you link that to and Hamas is ISIS and Hamas is Nazis. And it's a very, very short step to saying it's, it's really, it's their own fault if their entire multi-generational family is wiped from the face of the earth. That is not Israel's fault for dropping the bomb. It is their fault for being who they are and where they are. And now for today's second interview. Paul Rogers is Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies in the Department of Peace Studies and International Relations at Bradford University, and he's Open Democracy's international security correspondent. So Paul, we're speaking as the Israeli military gears up for its ground offensive in Gaza, which was reportedly supposed to start over the weekend, but was delayed because of cloud cover that would supposedly have inhibited the Israeli Air Force. Thus far, it's been reported that over 2,700 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes, whilst dozens of people have also been killed on the occupied West Bank. And Israel and Hezbollah have also exchanged fire in the north. If we focus, though, first on Gaza, what do you think previous IDF operations in the territory, such as Operation Protective Edge in 2014, or Operation Cast Lead in 2008, tell us about how the IDF will act in Gaza? Or do you think that it's possible that those previous examples might be a rather poor guide to what will occur because of Israel's apparent determination to wipe out Hamas, and because it seems likely that Israel will act with even less concern for Palestinian civilians than usual, which would enable Israel to engage in a really unprecedented destruction of Gaza's housing and infrastructure, uh, which might make Israel's military objectives easier to achieve. Well, the first thing is, I think probably the 2008 war in which 1,400 Palestinians uh, were killed and 13 Israelis were killed was massive. Um, But I'm not sure that's a good guide to what happens now. Whereas Protective Edge in 2014 is a better guide. 
that was really in response both to uh, Hamas actions on the um, the tunnels uh, getting into Israel and also the extensive use of the rockets. Now, that essentially was an air war involving 2,100 Palestinian deaths and about 10,000 Palestinian wounded. The Israelis lost 67, but that included a number of members of the elite Golani Brigade, because that was the occasion when the Israelis went in to try and disrupt the tunnels using uh, ground troops. That's the only occasion in which they used major numbers of ground troops. And as I say, it ended eventually in a ceasefire after the best part of two months. I think that's an indication of how the Israelis are going to play it now. They seem to want to very much destroy Hamas completely. Whether that's possible is another matter. I very much doubt it, but that's their intention. So I think what they're likely to do is use very heavy force. Um, one issue, though, of course, is where do the Palestinian refugees go? About half of those in the northern part of the Gaza Strip have gone down to the south, nearly half, but many haven't. And even if they're in the south, if the Israeli Defense Forces want to really destroy Hamas, then they'll have to do in the south what they're currently doing in the north, because there are plenty of tunnels, plenty of launch sites and the rest in the south. And in any case, Hamas will be ready for virtually all that the Israelis can do. They will have seen through. What they did uh, last Saturday week was quite astonishing in terms of the intelligence they already had on where the Israelis were and what they were doing. So I think, basically, we're going to see a very major operation, one which is clearly causing a lot of the Gulf states considerable worry, and Egypt as well, and I think to an extent the United States. Um, but it's the current government of Israel which is so significant here, and I think they will go much farther than any other government, even Protective Edge back in 2014. Would it be your view that the order to evacuate the north is due to an intention to create a sort of gigantic free fire zone in the north uh, and make it possible for Israel to fire on targets extremely indiscriminately because they will act as if anybody in the north is fair game because they've had the warning to go south and, and so on. And presumably, given the importance placed by the Palestinians on, on summered uh, or steadfastness, this, this idea that the Palestinians should hold fast to the land to, to the extent possible, that Hamas will feel uh, obliged to fight in the north rather than withdraw its forces to the south? Or, or do you think they may withdraw? It's always possible that Hamas may withdraw and actually not fight on what they would consider to be Israel's terms. It all depends on whether they consider that what Israel is going to do is something that they can handle or can't handle. And if they can't handle it, they will basically withdraw and uh, sort of figuratively and literally go to ground. What Israel intends is very difficult to say. I mean, what one can remind ourselves is that the losses last Saturday week by Israeli standards are absolutely appalling. The big, biggest civilian loss probably since the War of Independence back in 19. 47-49, and it has cast a huge psychological impact on Israelis, uh, almost right across the board. Um, yes, I mean, the loss of life has been smaller than the Palestinians have suffered in previous incidents, uh, but that isn't where we're coming from because of the, the nature of Israeli culture. Uh, and what happened was an utter shock because uh, one of the best comments about Israel is it's a state which has to be impregnable in its insecurity. 
it has to feel impregnable, but always there is the knowledge that it isn't secure because of where it is located. And essentially what happened last Saturday really struck at the heart of that. Um, and of course, has also been a particular issue for the current government, the most hardline right-wing government that we've seen in the history of Israel by some measure. And that government, I think, is really deciding that if it's going to stand and survive, it has to play this extremely tough. And that may well extend to the unity cabinets being established. And don't forget that the Israelis were already having pretty serious problems on the West Bank uh, because the increasing activity of the more politically active settlers that have gone over in recent years has been such that it's been very difficult to control the security. And many Palestinians, a hundred or more, have already been killed in the last few days. So that is flaring up. And I think the current government of, of all Israeli governments feels it has to be in control, fully in control. And the shock of the other week was really something which was struck at its heart. And this is where it's very difficult to predict how it would respond. But the problem is it could respond very, very seriously. It's one of the reasons why I think the Americans are really not sure how to go from here and where they can keep the Israeli war machine under some degree of control. We know that Hamas's operation Al-Aqsa flood was likely years in the planning. So presumably Hamas has also made very extensive preparations for the expected ground offensive. What might those preparations look like, do you think? This again, it's very difficult to predict. I mean, there are some good military analysts around and they don't seem to be coming to any one single conclusion. Uh, it may well be that Hamas has a capability in the occupied West Bank. Uh, certainly it has support there, but it's not been active under that name. I mean, you simply don't know, but I think you're right in that what took place uh, just, what, nine days ago was something that had been prepared for for years and planned in detail in in recent months. There are independent and I think reliable reports that Hamas has available between 15 and 20,000 um, militant paramilitaries. Um, the Israelis reckon it could be 30,000. But I think one of the things that people have missed is that when Hamas went into Israel, where it crossed the border and broke down the fences, there's, there's something like up to 3,000 of the young paramilitaries went in. Probably the great majority of them were prepared to die that day, and at least a thousand did, according to some reports, maybe 1,500, sort of a kind of cohort of young men who will go the full way. It seemed, I think, to have a lot to do with the growing up of young children through into adolescence over the last, what, 15 or so years in the midst of these wars. And I think probably uh, it was the 2014 one, Protective Edge, which would have had a, hu a huge effect uh, on younger people, people aged sort of around about 13, 14, 15, who are now late teens or early 20s. And there are pretty good indications that many of them were flocking to join Hamas as they got older. And one of the issues here, inevitably, is that if we get another even greater conflict with more and more Palestinian loss of life and, and Gaza almost sort of destroyed, that does not end it. In fact, what that does is probably create even more thousands of young people prepared to die. But it's extremely difficult to get that across to the Israeli government, although I suspect quite a few Israelis who are thinking this through are really concerned themselves. But I have no direct evidence of that at the present time. In some ways, one hopes that other people are looking at it in this, in this way.
It's been widely suggested that Hamas will make use of the captured soldiers and, and the civilian hostages as human shields. Although many of the analysts who discuss this possibility fail to mention that human rights organisations have documented that Israel has been using human shields in the occupied territory since the late 1960s. Do you think Hamas is likely to do this? And, and do you think it's likely to be effective? Because the mood that the Israeli government seems to be in seems to suggest that they are prepared to accept the deaths of those soldiers and, and, and civilians in order to carry out their objective of annihilating Hamas. I think probably the latter, sadly. I think what we have to look at constantly is the nature of the current Israeli government. It really is very far to the right. It has a, a small but very serious and effective religious dimension uh, of what you might call the extreme Zionists. Uh, and the personality of the current leader all, is also significant here. It's a very difficult question to answer. It's not one one can easily call. But the sense is that you know, the Israeli government in its current form would, in fact, be prepared to see some of the or maybe all of the hostages killed. And of course, if that does happen, they will make the Israelis even more determined um, to get rid of Hamas. The problem is that Hamas cannot be got rid of. It may well be that what the Israelis would like to do, and they see the only answer to their problem, is essentially to get the population of Gaza south of the border into Egypt. But the Egyptians are absolutely adamantly opposed to that. And it's clear that Blinken got pretty strong warnings, both from the Egyptians and, incidentally, the Jordanians, when he was on his tour around just a few days ago. So again, we're in in a mess here, and it's very, it's very difficult to actually make predictions and to honestly say this is what is really likely. We are a new territory, both with the extent of the impact of that, the longer-term impact on the Palestinians both in Gaza and also in the West Bank, uh, and above all, the nature of that government. Hamas is being routinely described as if it is ideologically almost identical to ISIS, which is obviously not correct. And I, I think I saw one person making the obvious point that under Hamas rule, three Christian churches uh, exist in Gaza, you know, a, a completely unimaginable idea in ISIS's short-lived caliphate. But if that comparison is, is not correct, do you think it might be worth thinking about the fight against ISIS in Mosul and Raqqa uh, and what that might tell us about how the conflict between Hamas and Israel might go? Well, I think what you can see, and I would say particularly Mosul, perhaps slightly less so uh, Raqqa, Mosul, the old city of Mosul was virtually destroyed. Uh, you look at the photographs which came out at the time, or at least in the month or so afterwards, it's quite astonishing. I mean, one of the journalists who was there at a fairly early stage after the city fell, was it? It was like Stalingrad, only worse. Uh, and this, of course, was the action, well, principally of the Americans, probably some British bombers as well, strike aircraft. Americans, French, um, essentially Iraqi militias linked pretty loosely to uh, Iran, and of course, other Iraqi forces. But certainly, the firepower used on Mosul, Western Mosul, and particularly the old city, fairly close to the river. Um, was extraordinary. But then it, it's it's only an extension of what happened in Ramadi. And you go back to uh, the taking control of Fallujah back in, what was it, November 2004. Uh, and then all of the public buildings were at least damaged, if not destroyed, by the US Marines and the rest. And half of all the residences in the entire city were either destroyed or damaged. 
uh, and of course uh, it was possible to retake Fallujah. Um, but you look at Iraq now, uh, just as you know, one looks at Afghanistan uh, all these years after the original attempt, and you come constantly against this problem that uh, a war such as Afghanistan or Iraq, and I suspect now this phase of the Arab-Israeli conflict is such that very heavy force does seem to work very well. The Taliban were gone in, what, less than three months. Um, the statue of Saddam in that Baghdad square was felled within three weeks of the start of that war. Um, and essentially, where we are now is, well, essentially, Afghanistan, the Taliban are pretty well fully in control. And Iraq is a, a, is a very problematic uh, city in terms of its long-term uh, security. And one has to remember that ISIS is still active in Iraq and Syria and certainly hasn't gone away. In fact, it and allied groups, including groups linked to al-Qaeda, are active right across the Sahel in northern Africa and even right down to Mozambique. So this whole issue that, you know, you can defeat movements by huge force tends to come apart. And I think this is what may happen in the short term, in the longer term in Israel. I've no doubt at all that if the Israelis use massive force in Gaza, then it will seem to work in the short term. What will do to Israel's status in the world? What will do to the rise of anti-Semitism in many countries, including countries like Britain? Um, one hates to think. But in the short term, it would seem to work. Long term, I think the message is almost certainly no. It seems quite possible that Hezbollah and Iran will feel obliged to respond as Israeli atrocities escalate in Gaza. Do you think they will try to keep that to symbolic acts of support for Hamas? Or do you anticipate large-scale missile strikes on Israel and, and even perhaps an incursion by Hezbollah in the, in the north of the country? Well, in answering that, it's worth remembering what happened in 2006, uh, which was the last time there was a major conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. And the Israelis put ground troops into southern Lebanon, and they came back in some disarray before too long. So what the Israelis would not do, I think, is in any sense try and fight a ground war in Lebanon. And of course, Hezbollah knows this. So they may well feel that they can't act with impunity, but they may, may well feel that they can take major risks to show their support. I suspect that would be primarily by uh, rocket launches and maybe occasional for, uh, forays across the border. But how far that will go, again, difficult to predict, will depend entirely on what happens in Gaza and the extent to which that has an impact on wider opinion right across the Middle East. Now, I think many Arab leaders across the uh, Middle East through to the Gulf are very worried about how their own peoples will behave if Israel acts in uh, Gaza in any way like the form that we're fearing at the moment. Netanyahu and other Israeli politicians and security officials have repeatedly talked about the idea of Israel transforming the whole region. But as you say, it's, it's, it seems unlikely that Israel would sanction, say, uh, a ground invasion of Lebanon. But at the same time, transforming the whole region, presumably that means the toppling of the regimes in Tehran and Damascus and the destruction of Hezbollah. Do you think it's therefore possible that Israel actually wants to regionalize the war in order to draw in the Americans with their vastly greater military capabilities? Uh, and of course, already there are two aircraft carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean, along with the British Navy's comically tokenistic presence. Well, we've got two Royal Fleet Auxiliaries. I'm not even sure that they're armed. If they are armed, they're very likely armed. 
uh, it, I don't think the Americans will want to be drawn in. It's true they've got two carrier battle groups there. Um, the USS Ford went in a little while ago. In fact, the the current one, the one that is just being reported to be going in, I think it's the Eisenhower, uh, was actually due to deploy to the Mediterranean anyway. And I don't think it's even left the East Coast. I mean, this is for slightly longer term. I think in some ways, much is being made of this, uh, just to remind Iran in particular that the Americans do have a lot of the carrier-based power. There's also a fairly clear indication that one of the reasons that the Americans are making sure that there are two carriers in the region is that if they were in any sense engaged, they would probably find that all their own bases in the Gulf states would find that the leaderships do not allow the Americans to actually operate from them. And that has happened before on a smaller scale. So in any way, I, I think um, the United States would be very cautious about getting involved in any major Middle Eastern war. Russia presumably would like it because of the diversion from Ukraine. But I hope I'm right on this. I don't think the Americans are in a position to do this. And I don't think there will be the support domestically. Heaven knows what would happen next year when you have Trump back in. But you don't think it's possible that the Israelis might nonetheless succeed in drawing the Americans in because, you know, one can sort of imagine a sort of escalating ladder where we go from, you know, Israel carries out massive atrocities in, in, in Gaza, including the expelling of much of the population into the Sinai. At that point, Hezbollah and Iran have to respond or feel they have to respond. And, and the, you know, that means the much larger missile arsenals that they have raining down on Israel. And surely at that point, the Americans have to respond, don't they? I don't know. Uh, you know I wish one could say, so I suspect that behind the scenes, in spite of all that is being said in public, the Americans are going very far down the line to try and keep Israel under control. Uh, I think there's a lot of very sensible analysts who really fear what is happening now and are warning against getting involved in any major way. I hope that's correct, uh, but you can't be absolutely sure because we are in such difficult times. Um, but there has been a tendency in the United States, particularly on the right, uh, to avoid any kind of foreign wars. So it's a very difficult question to answer. One hopes that the United States wouldn't get involved in a major way. and One hopes that it can use sufficient influence to this current Israeli government to bring it in. Very difficult for that government to change, given the position it's found itself now, and what it's threatened to do. But you never know. The United States still has an awful lot of power and influence in Israel. Um, whether it will use it will depend heavily on the nature of the Israel lobby in the United States. But that is not brilliantly strong with its Jewish membership. I mean, it gets a lot of its support from Christian Zionists, who are going to vote Republican anyway. So even on the political dimension, one can't be sure uh, that the United States feels that beholden to Israel as much as we tend to think. Israel has long prided itself on its high-tech security systems, including the Iron Dome anti-missile batteries. What does Hamas's operation tell us about that system and, and how effective it would be if, if Hezbollah or Iran were to enter the fray with their, their missiles? Well, I think on the Iron Dome, it seems to be an extremely capable system and, and, until it's swamped. And uh, the uh, uh, basically Hamas has used the best part of 5,000 of its weapons. The assessment is that Hamas alone, maybe with Islamic Jihad, has another 15,000 available even now. And if that is the case, then Hezbollah could be double that number. So Iron Dome 
may be in strict term very effective, but it is capable of being swamped in this way. And of course, that means that Hamas will have learned even more how to do that. And Hezbollah will have been watching that with keen interest. On the general security side, well, yes, I mean, I think the assumption was that, you know, the wall and everything, all the fences, all the networks would work very well, and they didn't. What's difficult to tell at the moment, whether that is partly because of the skill of the Hamas operatives, particularly the way a group of, I think, only six of them uh, got into the the key uh, control area for that section of, of Israel, which is located quite a few kilometers from the fence, which they broke through first. Now, you just had, as far as one report seemed to be, that there were just three motorcycles with six people on who took this on and killed the people and basically took it over and, and decoupled it. Now, that suggests maybe a, fin a hidden flaw. It may also be because the, the, the Israelis were so uh, certain that they had this under control that there was a degree of hubris. Okay, well, those are my questions, Paul. Any final comments before we finish up? We should not un underestimate what has happened in Israel. Uh, I think the, the shock of what happened was visceral. It was at a similar level in public opinion, certainly, uh, to 9-11. And of course, in terms of the numbers and the size of the population, then what the Israelis experienced is about 10 times worse than 9-11. And this is why I think it's really very difficult given the combination of that and the current Israeli government, to see how they can be reined in. And much will depend maybe not just on what the Americans do, but, you know, what other European, some of the European countries do as well. Although given the attitude of both the government and the opposition in Britain, I don't expect very much there. But if there's even just a minor pause, then I think that is important. Probably the most important thing for anybody to do, whether government or individual, is to say you must get some sort of ceasefire now, some kind of short breathing space, then it might be possible to basically ease on things. If not, then I think things are very unpredictable. I say one other thing again, I know it's repeating, and that is you do not know what the United States is doing behind the scenes. And I think there's a lot of fears in Washington that this could get beyond their control. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Music.